The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments. Not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Chapter 5 of The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter 5. 20 Degrees. A hot and sultry day towards the end of June was drawing to a close. I had just finished dinner, and returned to my laboratory to continue some spectroscopic work, when Defrayer, whom I had not seen for more than a week, walked in. Noticing that I was busy, he took a cigar from a box which lay on the table, and sank into an easy chair without speaking. "'What is it to-night, Norman?' he asked at last, as I descended from my stool. Is it the elixir of life, or the philosopher's stone? Neither, I replied. I have received some interesting specimens of reduced hemoglobin, and am experimenting on them. By the way, where have you been all this week? At Eastbourne. The assizes begin at the Old Bailey, as you know, on Thursday, and I am conducting the defence in the case of the Disney murder. However, I have not come here to talk shop. I had a small adventure in Eastbourne, and have come to tell you about it. More developments? I asked, slightly startled by his tone which was unusually grave. "'Come into the garden. We will have coffee there.' We went through the open French windows and ensconced ourselves in wicker chairs. "'Does it ever occur to you,' said Dufrayer, taking his cigar from his mouth as he spoke, "'that you and I are in personal danger? It is absurd to lull ourselves into security by saying that such things do not happen in our day. But my only surprise is that Madame Colucci has not yet struck a blow at either of us. The thought of her haunts me.' She fights with almost omnipotent powers, and we cannot foresee from what quarter the shaft may come. "'You have a reason for saying this?' I interrupted. "'Has it anything to do with your visit to the seaside?' "'There is a possibility that it may have something to do with it, but of that I am not certain. In all likelihood, Head, there are no two men in London in such a strange position as ours.' "'It is a self-elected one, at any rate,' I replied. "'True,' he answered. Well, I will tell you what happened, and the further sequel which occurred this evening. I had been feeling rather done, and as I had a few days to spare, thought I would spend them geologizing along the cliffs at Eastbourne. On Tuesday last I went out for the whole day on a long expedition under the cliffs towards Burling Gap. I was so engrossed in my discovery of some very curious pieces of iron pyrites, for which that part of the coast is noted, that I forgot the time, and darkness set in before I turned for home. The tide was luckily low, so I had nothing to fear. I had just rounded the point on which the lighthouse stands when, to my amazement, I heard a shrill, clear voice call my name. I stopped and turned round, but at first could see nothing. In a moment, however, I observed a figure approaching me. It sprang lightly from rock to rock. As it came nearer, it resolved itself into a boy, dressed in a light grey suit and a cloth cap. I was just going to address him, when he raised his hands as if in warning, and said quickly, in a low voice, don't return to London. Stay here. You are in danger. What do you mean? I asked. 
He made no reply, and before I could repeat my question had left me, and was continuing his rapid course toward the promontory. I shouted after him, "'Stop! Who are you?' But in another moment I completely lost sight of him in the dark shadow of the cliffs. I ran forward, but not a trace of him could I see. I shouted. There was no answer. I then made up my mind that pursuit was useless, and returned to the town. "'Have you seen or heard anything since of the mysterious youth?' I asked. "'Nothing whatever.' "'What do you think of his warning? Is it possible that I am really in danger? Is Madame Colucci mixed up in this affair?' I paused before replying. Then I said slowly, "'As Madame is in existence, and as the youth, whoever he was, happened to know your name, there is just a possibility that the adventure may wear an ugly aspect. Two conclusions may be arrived at with regard to it. One, that this warning was intended to keep you at Eastbourne for some dangerous object, the other that it was a friendly warning given for some reason in this strange manner. "'You arrive precisely at my own views on the subject,' replied Dufrayer. "'I am not a nervous man, and can defend my life if necessary, but that small incident has struck me in a curious way. Of course, it is quite impossible for me to leave town. The Disney murder trial comes on this week, and as there are many complications it will occupy some days. But, Head, try as I will, the impression of that boy's warning will not wear off.' and now listen there is a sequel see this came by the last post as dufrayer spoke he drew a letter from his pocket and thrust it into my hands i took it to the window where by the light of a lamp inside the room i read the following lines meet me inside gates marble arch at ten to-night do not fail you have disregarded my advice but i may still be able to do something your correspondent makes a strange rendezvous i remarked as i handed it back to him what do you mean to do "'What would you do in my place?' asked Dufrayer, shifting the question. He gazed at me earnestly, and with veiled anxiety in his face. "'Take no notice,' I said. "'The letter is anonymous, and as likely as not may be a trap to lead you into danger. I do not see anything for it but for you to pursue the even tenor of your way, just as if there were no Madame Colucci in the world.' It was half-past nine o'clock. The moon was rising, and Dufrayer's grave face, with his dark brows knit, confronted mine. After a time he rose. "'I believe you are right,' he said. "'I shall disregard that letter as I disregarded the warning of the youth in the sands. My unknown correspondent must keep his rendezvous in vain. I won't stay any longer this evening. I am terribly busy getting up my case for Thursday. Good night.' When he was gone I sat out of doors a little longer, pondering much over the two warnings which he had received, and which I had thought best to make little of to him. It was, as he said, impossible for him to leave town, but all the same I by no means liked the aspect of the affairs. Whatever the warnings meant, they were at least significant of grave danger ahead, and knowing Madame Colucci as I did, I felt certain that no depths of treachery were beyond her powers. I returned to the house, but felt little inclination to resume my experiments in the laboratory. The night grew more and more sultry, and a thunderstorm threatened. Between eleven and twelve o'clock I was just preparing to retire for the night, when there came a loud ring at my front door. The servants had all gone to bed. In some surprise I went to open the door. A woman in a voluminous cloak and old-fashioned bonnet was standing on the threshold. The moment the door was opened, and before I could say a word, she had stepped into the hall. "'Don't keep me out,' she said in a breathless voice. "'I am followed, and there is danger. Mr. Dufrayer has failed to keep his appointment, and I was forced to come here. I know you, Mr. Head. I know all about you, and also about Mr. Dufrayer. Let me speak at once. I have something most important to say.' Do get over your astonishment, and close the door. I tell you, I am closely watched. The figure of the woman was old, but the voice was young. 
Without a word I shut the hall door. As I did so, she removed her bonnet and dropped her cloak. She now stood revealed to me as a slight, handsome, dark-eyed girl. Her skin was of a clear olive, and her eyes black. "'My name is Elsie Fancourt,' she said. "'My home is at Henley. My mother is the widow of a barrister. Our address is 5 Gloucester Gardens, Albert Road, Henley. Will you remember it?' I nodded. "'Will you make a note of it?' "'I can remember it without that,' I said. "'Very good. You may need that address later on. Now, Mr. Head, you are thinking strange things of me, but I am not, in the ordinary sense of the word, an adventuress. I am a lady, one in sore, sore straits. I have come to you in my desperate need, because I believe you can help me, and because you and also Mr. Dufrayer are in the gravest danger. Will you trust me?' As she spoke she raised her eyes, and looked me full in the face. I read an expression of truth in the depths of her fine eyes. My suspicion vanished. I held out my hand. "'You are a strange girl, and have come here at a strange hour,' I said. "'But I do trust you. Only extreme circumstances could make you act as you are doing. What is the matter?' "'Take me into one of your sitting-rooms, and I will explain.' I opened the door of my study, and asked her to walk in. "'The matter is one of life and death,' she began, speaking in a hurried voice. "'Mr. Dufrayer has twice disregarded my warning. I warned him at the risk of my liberty, if not my life, and when he failed to keep the appointment which I made for him this evening, I felt there was nothing whatever for it but to come to you and to cast myself on your mercy. Mr. Head, there is not a moment to lose. Our common enemy—here she lowered her voice—is Madame Colucci. She has done me a great and awful wrong. She has done that which no woman with a woman's wit and intuition can ever forgive. I will avenge myself on her, or die." "'Is it possible that you are the person who gave Mr. Dufrayer that strange warning on the beach at Eastbourne?' I asked. "'I am. I dressed myself as a boy for greater safety, but that night I was followed to my lodgings. Had Mr. Dufrayer heeded my advice, I should not be here now. Mr. Head, your friend is in imminent danger of his life. I cannot tell you how the blow will fall, for I do not know, but I am certain of what I am saying. Out of London he might have a chance. In London he has practically none. Listen.' You are both marked by the Brotherhood, and Mr. Dufrayer is to be the first victim. No human laws can protect him. Even here, in this great and guarded city, he cannot possibly escape. The person who strikes the blow may be caught, may suffer. Here a look of agony crossed her face. But what is the good of that, she continued, when the blow has done its work? No one outside the Brotherhood knows its immense resources. I repeat, Mr. Dufrayer has no chance whatever if he remains in London. He must leave immediately." "'That, I fear, is impossible,' I replied gravely. "'My friend is no coward. He is conducting the defence in an important case at the criminal courts. The life of an accused man hangs on his remaining in town. Need I say more?' She turned white to her lips. "'I know all that,' she answered. "'Have I not followed the thing step by step? Madame also knows how Mr. Dufrayer is placed, and what he has to do this week. She has made her plans accordingly. Oh, Mr. Head!' would I risk my life as I am doing, for a mere nothing? Can you not believe in the reality of the danger?' "'I can,' I answered. "'I am certain from your manner that you are speaking the truth, and I know enough of Madame Colucci to be sure of the gravity of the situation. Of course I will tell Mr. Dufrayer what you say, and suggest that he get a substitute to carry on his work in the courts. "'Will you see him to-night?' she asked eagerly. "'Yes. Thank you.' "'He is certain to refuse to go,' I said. It is right to give him your warning, but he will disregard it. Ah, you think so? I am positive. 
In that case, something else must be done, and I must know immediately. If your friend refuses, send a letter to E.F., General Post Office, marked Poste Restante. I will go to St. Martin's Le Grand early tomorrow morning to obtain it. Put nothing within the letter but the word no. Don't sign your name. In case my friend decides not to leave town, you shall have such a letter, I replied. Under those circumstances, I must see you again, continued Miss Fancourt. I made no reply. It is better for me not to communicate with you. Even a telegram would be scarcely safe. I have, I believe, managed elude vigilance in coming here. I feel that I am watched, day and night. I dare not risk the chance of meeting you in the ordinary way. Let me think for a moment. She stood still, leaning her hand against her cheek. Are you musical? she asked suddenly. Fairly so, I replied. Do you know enough of music to—she paused and half smiled—to tune a piano, for instance? What do you mean? I asked. I will soon explain myself. The piano tuner is expected at our house to-morrow. Will you come in his place? I will send him a line the moment I get home, telling him to postpone his visit, but will let our servant think that he is coming. She has never seen our piano tuner, and will suppose that you are the man we usually employ for the purpose. Do you mind assuming this role? I am perfectly willing to try my hand on your piano, I said. Thank you. Then, in case you have to write that letter, come to our house to-morrow about two o'clock. The servant will admit you, believing you to be the tuner, and will show you into our drawing-room. I will join you there in a few moments. You can leave the rest to me. I promised to do as Miss Fancourt required, and soon afterwards she took her leave. A few moments later I was on my way to Defrayer's flat. He kept late hours, and I was relieved to see light still burning in his windows. I was quickly admitted by my host himself. "'Come in, Norman,' he cried. "'That will do, North,' he continued, turning to a young man whom I recognized as one of his managing clerks. "'You have taken down all those instructions? Merchantson and James Watts must be subpoenaed as witnesses. I shall be at the office early tomorrow morning.' The young man in question, who had a pale, dark face and grey, sensitive eyes, quickly gathered up several papers, and bowing to Dufrayer and myself, took his leave. "'One of the best managing clerks I have ever had,' said Dufrayer, as he left the room. I have been in great luck to secure him. He is a wonderfully well-educated fellow, and knows several languages. He has been with me for the past three months. I cannot tell you what a relief it is to have a clerk who really possesses a head on his shoulders. But you have news, Norman. What is it? I have, I answered, strange news. After all, Dufrayer, I am inclined to believe your anonymous correspondent. The youth on the Eastbourne beach has merged into a girl. Finding that you would not keep the appointment she made for you, she came straight to me, and has, in fact, only just left me. Strange as it all seems, I believe in that girl. May I tell you what occurred during our interview? Dufrayer pulled a chair forward for me without saying a word. He stood facing me while I told my story. When I had finished, he gave his shoulders a slight shrug, and then said, But, after all, Miss Fancourt has revealed nothing. Because at present she only suspects, I replied. "'And she coolly asked you to come to me to request me to throw my client over at the eleventh hour and to leave town?' "'She certainly believes that your danger is real,' I answered. "'Well, real or not, I cannot possibly act on her warning,' replied Dufrayer. As he spoke he walked to the window and looked out. "'Things have come to a pretty pass when a man is hunted in this fashion,' he continued. "'A respectable London solicitor is converted into a modern Damocles, with the sword of Madame Colucci suspended above his head.' The thing is preposterous. It cannot go on. My work keeps me here, and here I must stay. I will trust the Criminal Investigation Department against Madame's worst machinations. I shall go to Scotland Yard early tomorrow morning and see Ford. The thing is a perfect nightmare. 
"'I told Miss Fancourt you would not leave town,' I replied. "'And you did right,' he said. "'Nevertheless, I believe in her,' I continued. Dufrayer gave me one of those slow, inscrutable smiles which now and then flitted across his strong face. "'You were always a bit of an enthusiast, Head,' he replied. "'But the fact is, I have no time to worry over this matter now. All my energies of mind and body must be exerted on behalf of that unfortunate man, the conduct of whose trial has been placed in my hands.' I left Dufrayer, and before I resumed home, wrote the single word no on a sheet of blank paper, folded it up, and put it into an envelope, and addressed it to E.F., Post-Restant, Saint-Martin-le-Grand. To think over the enigma which Miss Fancourt had presented to me seemed worse than useless, but try as I would, I could not banish it from my thoughts, and I even owned to a sense of relief when, on the following day, about two o'clock, I presented myself as the supposed piano-tuner at five Gloucester Gardens, Albert Road, Henley. The house was a small one, and a neatly dressed little servant opened the door. She evidently expected the piano-tuner, for she smiled when she saw me, and showed me at once into the drawing-room. She supplied me with the necessary dusters, and opened the piano. I had just struck some chords on the somewhat ancient instrument, when Miss Fancourt came hastily in. "'I am sorry,' she said, speaking in a rather loud voice, but mother has a very bad headache, and has asked me to request you to postpone tuning the instrument to-day. But you must not go before you have had some lunch. I have asked the servant to bring it in. She had left the door open, and now the girl who had admitted me followed, bearing a tray which contained some light refreshment. "'Put it down on that table, Susan,' said Miss Fancourt, "'and then please go at once for the medicine for your mistress. I can open the door in case anyone calls.' The girl, quite unsuspicious, departed, and Miss Fancourt and I found ourselves alone. "'Susan will be absent for over half an hour,' said the girl, "'and I have told mother enough to ensure her not coming into the room. She has feigned that headache. It was necessary to do so, in order to get an excuse for sending our little servant out for some medicine, and so keeping her out of the way. A man was here, questioning her, only this morning. "'Oh, you make a first-class piano-tuner, Mr. Head,' she continued, looking at me with a smile, which vanished almost as soon as it came." but now to business. So your friend refuses to leave town. He does, I replied. I told you that it was quite impossible for him to do so. I know you said so. Now I am going to give you my full confidence. But before I do so, will you give me your word that what I am about to say will never, under any circumstances, pass your lips? I cannot do that, I replied. But if I find that you are a friend to me, I will be one to you. She looked at me steadily. That will not do, she said. "'Mr. Dufrayer is an old acquaintance of yours, is he not?' "'My greatest friend,' I said. Her brow cleared, and her dark eyes lightened. "'His life is in danger,' she said. "'By this time to-morrow he may—' She paused, trembling. Her very lips turned white. "'For heaven's sake, speak out,' I cried. "'Yes, I will explain myself. I am certain that when you know all, you will give me the promise, which is absolutely necessary for my own salvation.' and the salvation of one dearer to me than myself. Six months ago I became engaged to a man of the name of John North. North, I said. North? I felt puzzled by a memory. The girl proceeded, without noticing my interruption. I love John North, she said slowly. If necessary, I would die for him. I would go to any risk to save him from his present, most perilous position. As she spoke, her dark brows were knit, she clasped her hands tightly together and bent her head. "'There is a managing clerk of the name of North in Dufrayer's office,' I said slowly. 
"'There is,' she replied. "'He is the man about whom I am speaking. Now please follow me closely. Mr. North, who was educated abroad and spent all his early years in Italy, was articled, while still quite a youth, to a large firm of solicitors in the city. Early in the spring Mr. Dufrayer engaged him as one of his managing clerks at a salary of four guineas a week. "'I met North last night,' I said. "'He looked an intelligent fellow, and my friend spoke very highly of him. I have not the least idea, Miss Fancourt, what this is leading up to, but, as far as I can tell, North seems all right.' "'Please let me continue,' said the girl. "'You will soon see how complicated matters are. Almost immediately after our engagement, John North got into Madame's set. I do not know how he first had an introduction to her, although I sometimes think he must have met her long ago in Italy. She evidently holds the deepest fascination over him, for he was never tired of talking of her, her wonderful house, her fame, her beauty, and the strange power she had over each person with whom she came in contact. One day he told me through her agency, although her name did not appear in the matter, she had got him an excellent appointment as managing clerk in the office of your friend. I started. My attention was now keenly aroused. This, continued Miss Fancourt, was three months ago. Mr. Head, during those three months everything has altered. The sun has got behind clouds. The sky is black. I am the most miserable girl on earth. You have doubtless a reason for your misery, I said. I have. Mr. Head, you tell me you have seen John North? Last night, for the first time, I answered. And you liked his appearance? I was attracted by his face. I cannot exactly say that I liked it. It seemed clever. He looked intelligent. He is wonderfully so. Six months ago, when first we were engaged, his face used to wear the brightest, keenest expression. Now it is haggard, restless. Each day something of good leaves it, and something of evil takes its place. Something, yes, something is eating into his youth, his manhood, and his beauty. He is changed to me. I believe he has almost lost the capacity of loving anyone. My love, however, is unaltered, for I know there is a spell over him. When it is removed, he will be his own old self again. Three weeks ago, Mr. Head, I swore I would discover what was wrong. Unknown to anyone, I followed John North to a house in Mayfair. He went there with a large party, of whom Madame was one. I have found out what that house is. It is an opium den, though few except its frequenters are aware of that fact. It was easy for me, then, to put two and two together, and to know what was wrecking the life of the man I loved. You are a scientist, and understand what the opium vice means. It has ruined my lover." both in body and soul. "'This is terribly sad,' I answered. "'But I cannot quite understand what it has to do with Dufrayer.' "'I am coming to that part,' she replied. After I had seen him entering the opium saloon, I began to watch John North more closely than ever, and soon I had strong reason to suspect that he was burdened by a great and very terrible secret. I seemed to read this fact in his eyes, in his manner. He avoided my glance. His gaiety left him. He became more gloomy and depressed, hour by hour. My mother lives here, and has done so for years, but my journalistic work keeps me in town during the greater part of the week. I have a small room in Soho, where I sleep whenever necessary, but I always spend from Saturday to Monday at home. I was careful not to give Mr. North the slightest clue that I had guessed his secret, and on the special Sunday evening about which I am going to tell you, I asked him to come and visit me at our house. He had neglected me terribly of late leaving my letters unanswered, seeming indifferent to my presence. He had ceased altogether to speak of our marriage, and the only things which really interested him were his law work and his evenings in Madame's set. When I pressed him, however, 
he promised faithfully to come to see me on that special Sunday, and I sat for a long time in this room waiting for him. He did not arrive, and I grew restless. I put on my hat and went along the road to meet him. He did not appear. I felt desperate then, and determined to do a bold thing. I took the next train to town. I arrived in London between six and seven o'clock, and took a hansom straight to his rooms. The landlady, whom I had already seen once or twice, told me that he was in. I went upstairs and knocked at his sitting-room door. I heard his voice say, "'Come in,' and I entered. He was sitting on the sofa, and did not show the least surprise at seeing me. He asked me in a low, languid voice what I had come about. I replied that, as he had failed to keep his appointment with me, I had come to him. As I spoke, I looked round the room. I noticed that he had in his hand a long pipe, and that there was a peculiar, sickly odour in the air. A small spirit lamp of uncommon shape stood burning on the table. I immediately guessed what was happening. When I interrupted him, he was indulging in opium smoke. He was drawing in the pernicious, the awful drug, and did not care that I should interfere with him. I was determined, however, to probe this matter to the bitter end. I resolved at any risk to save him. I knew that there was only one way to do this. I must learn the truth. I must find out what that thing was which was casting its awful shadow over him. Like a flash, it occurred to me that in his present condition it would be easy to wrest secrets from his lips. I would therefore encourage him to smoke. Instead of blaming him, therefore, for smoking the opium, I sat down by him and asked some questions with regard to it. I requested him to continue the pleasure which I had interrupted, and showed him that I was very much interested in the effects of opium. Low as he had fallen, he evidently did not like to indulge in the horrible habit in my presence, but I would not hear of his denying himself. I even helped him to put some more of the prepared opium into the bowl of the pipe. I smiled gently at him as the heavy aromatic smoke curled up round his nostrils, soothing and calming him. He began to enter into the fun of the thing, as he called it, and asked me to seat myself by his side. I felt sick and trembling, but never for a moment did my resolution fail me. As he got more and more under the influence of the opium, and I noticed the pinpoint pupils of his eyes, I began to question him. My questions were asked with extreme care, and deliberately, step by step, I wormed his secrets from him. A ghastly plot was revealed to me, a plot so horrible, so certain in its issues, that I could scarcely restrain myself while I listened. It had to do with you, Mr. Head, with Mr. Dufrayer, and in especial with my lover himself, John North. Just as he murmured the last words of his awful secret, he fell back into complete insensibility. I immediately hurried from the room. I knew enough of the effects of opium to be certain that John would have no remembrance of what he had said to me when he awoke in the morning. I saw the landlady, told her enough of my strange position to ensure her secrecy, and hurried away. That night I spent in town, but I had no rest. Since that dreadful moment I have not had an hour's quiet. The man I love is to be the instrument used by Madame Colucci for her terrible purpose. A blow is to be struck, and John North is to strike it. What the blow is in itself, how the fatal deed is to be committed, I have not the slightest idea, but your friend is doomed. Can you not understand my awful position? John North is to execute Madame's vengeance. It matters little to her if eventually he hangs for his crime, for, with her usual cunning, she has so arranged matters that she herself will not be implicated. Mr. Head, you now see what I want to do. I want to save John North. Your friend I should also wish to save. But John North comes first. Don't you understand? I understand, I replied, and I pity you from my heart. Then, if you pity me, you will help me. Undoubtedly I will. 
"'That is good. That is what I hoped.' "'But what is to be done? At present it seems to me that you and I are in the terrible position of knowing that there are rocks ahead, without having the slightest idea where they are.' "'I know this much, at least,' she replied. "'The fatal deed will be committed in London, hence my entreaty to your friend not to leave Eastbourne. I might have guessed that he would not heed an anonymous warning of that sort. Then I tried what a letter would do, begging him to meet me at the marble arch.' Little I cared what he thought of me, if only I could save John North. Mr. Dufrayer did not come, and as a last resource I fled to you. I am glad you did so, I answered. Have you any plan in your head on which I can immediately act? I have, but first of all I want your promise. You must not only save your friend, but you must save Mr. North. I want your word of honour that you will never give your testimony against him. I can only say that I will not be the one to hand him over to the police, I replied. More it is impossible to promise. Will that content you? She hesitated and looked thoughtful. I suppose it must, she said at last. Will Mr. Dufrayer make a similar promise? I think I can answer for him, I said. Very well. Now then, Mr. Head, it is just possible that we may be victorious yet. I have discovered that from time to time Mr. North receives communications from Madame Colucci. If we could get hold of some of these, we might reach the heart of this ghastly plot." "'But how is that to be done?' I asked. "'I have acquainted myself with all Mr. North's movements,' continued the girl. "'He goes to his lodgings every evening, between ten and eleven o'clock, not leaving them again until the morning. Doubtless, night after night, he has recourse to the solace of the opium-pipe. It is impossible for me to visit him again, for I am too closely watched. But will you go to him? Will you go to him to-night?' "'Do you really mean this?' I asked. "'I do,' she replied. "'It is the only thing to be done.' You can take a message from Mr. Dufrayer. You are Mr. Dufrayer's friend, so a message from him will be natural. When you have got into Mr. North's presence, you will know yourself what to do. Your own judgment will guide you. In all probability he will be under the effect of opium, and you can get further secrets from him. At the worst, you may be able to find some of Madame's communications. I stood still, considering. I will go, I said, but success seems more than doubtful. I do not agree with you. I am certain that, with your tact, you will succeed. If you can only get hold of some of Madame's letters, all may yet be well. By the way, can you read cipher? I understand many ciphers, I replied. I have discovered that Madame Colucci always writes in cipher. Go to-night. Do not fail. This is Mr. North's address. Do not try to communicate with me again. I shall know if you succeed, and if—but I dare not think of the other alternative. She held out her hand. Her face was white. Her lips trembled. "'You are a brave man,' she said. "'I feel somehow that you will succeed. Go. You must be out of this house before our little servant returns.' That evening, between ten and eleven o'clock, I found myself at North's lodging. The landlady herself opened the door. I inquired if North was in, said that I had come with an urgent message from Dufrayer, and asked to see him at once. "'I do not know whether he is in,' replied the woman. "'But if you will go upstairs to the sitting-room on the third floor, just facing the landing, you can see for yourself.' I nodded to her, and ran upstairs. A moment later I was knocking at the door which the landlady had indicated. There was no reply. I turned the handle and went in. One glance round the room caused my heart to beat with apprehension. The bird had evidently flown. Signs of a speedy departure were all too evident. Some paper, partly torn and partly burnt, was lying in the grate, and some more papers completely charred to ashes were near it. The door which opened into the bedroom was flung back on its hinges. 
I went there to see drawers and wardrobe open and empty. My next business was to go to the grate, secure the half-burnt paper, thrust it into my pocket, and go downstairs again. The landlady was nowhere in sight, so I let myself out. About midnight I returned home. Now, for one last forlorn hope, I said to myself, the man has evidently got a fright and has gone off. But like many another clever scoundrel, he did not quite complete his work before his departure. This paper is only half burnt. Can it be possible that it contains the hidden cipher which may yet save my friend? I went straight to my laboratory, and opening the crumbled, torn piece of paper, spread it out before me. To my dismay, I saw that it was only an ordinary sheet of a morning daily. I was about to fling it away, when suddenly an old memory returned to me. I knew of a method employed once by a great criminal who communicated with his confederates in the following manner. They received from time to time newspapers, certain of the printed letters of which were pricked with a needle. These prickings, when the paper was held up to the light, could be clearly seen, and the pricked letters, when taken down in consecutive order, formed certain words. Could the torn paper in my hands have been used for a similar purpose? I held it up to the light, but no sign of any pricking appeared. Pacing to and fro in my laboratory, I formed every conceivable hypothesis that might throw light on the terrible problem. What was to be done? At last, weary with anxiety, I went to bed, and exhausted as I was, sank into a heavy sleep. I was roused by my servant calling me at the usual hour the next morning, and almost at once my thoughts flew to our terrible position. I dressed and went again to my laboratory to examine once more the fragment of paper. Without having any definite reason for doing so, I got out my camera, and placing the paper in a strong light, exposed it to one of my rapid plates. Then, going to my dark-room, I proceeded to develop it. As I bent over the dish and rolled the solution to and fro in the plate, I suddenly started, and my heart beat quickly. Was it only imagination, or was something coming out, something beyond and above the mere printed words of the newspaper? In the dim red light I could almost swear that I detected separate dots on the plate, which the paper itself did not show. Could there be a flaw in the negative? Rapidly fixing it, I took it out and brought it to the light. A cry of joy burst from my lips. Over some of the printed letters something had been put which showed up in the negative as whiter than the paper, something which would reflect the ultraviolet rays of the spectrum, something fluorescent. Perhaps a solution of quinine was the agent employed. This would, I knew, be quite invisible to the naked eye. Scarcely able to contain the excitement which consumed me, I dried the plate rapidly, and printed off a copy, and without waiting to tone it, took it to the light and examined it with my lens. Great heavens! The awful plot was about to be unveiled. A cipher had really been sent to North in this subtle way. The letters which had been touched with the quinine stood out clearly. As the newspaper was torn and a great part of it burnt, I could not read the full details of the ghastly plot in consecutive order, but the following fragments— left little doubt of what the result was meant to be. Aneroid substituted. Thermometer explodes at twenty degrees, Riamur. Leave London to-night. My brain swam. Quick as lightning, my thoughts flew to defrayer. Thermometer explodes at twenty degrees, I found myself repeating. Twenty degrees on the Riamur scale in Russia means seventy-seven degrees Fahrenheit on our English scale. For the last few days the thermometer in London had daily recorded as high a temperature as this. Had it done so yet to-day? Dufrayer had an aneroid barometer hanging in his private room at his office. In it, I knew, was a thermometer. This was enough. I bolted from the house, and in another moment a hansom was taking me at a hand-gallop to Chancery Lane. 
In half an hour I was at my friend's door. I jumped out of the hansom and dashed through the clerk's office into his private room. Dufrayer had evidently just come in, and was seated at his desk. "'Is that you, North? How late you are! I want you to go at once!' he began. Then he caught sight of my face, and sprang from his chair. "'Norman!' he exclaimed. "'What in the world is the matter?' "'Get out of this!' I shouted. "'You will never see that ruffian North again, but no matter. You must save yourself now.' As I spoke, I pushed Dufrayer roughly to the farther end of the room. My eyes were fixed upon the thermometer in the aneroid, which hung on the wall over his desk. The mercury stood at seventy-six degrees. Seizing a jug of cold water, which stood on a table near, I dashed the contents over the instrument. The mercury sank. I was right. I could see it. I was only just in time. "'What in heaven's name is the matter? Are you mad?' said Dufrayer, gazing at me in astonishment. "'Matter?' I echoed. "'The devil's the matter. This thing is an infernal machine.' "'That aneroid, an infernal machine? My dear head, you must have lost your senses. I have had it for years.' "'This is not the aneroid you have had for years,' I answered. "'Get a bucket of cold water. Don't stand staring like that. Can you not understand that we may be blown to pieces any moment?' He paused just to take in the meaning of my words. Then the color left his face, and he rushed from the room. "'There,' I said, as I unhooked the instrument and lowered it gently into the bucket which he had got from the housekeeper's kitchen. We are safe for the present, but look here. We bent down and examined the aneroid closely. Fused into the glass bore at the line which marked seventy-seven degrees was the tiniest metallic projection. But what does it mean? Explain yourself, for heaven's sake, he said excitedly. I will, in a moment, I answered, drawing out my heavy knife. With the screwdriver I unscrewed the back and levered it open. Good heavens! Look here, I said. The space in the hollow woodwork was literally packed with masses of gun-cotton, and below it lay a small accumulator with its fine connecting wires. I cut the wires and emptied the cotton into the water. "'Don't you see now?' I cried. "'This is the most devilishly clever infernal machine that could be contrived. When the mercury rose to seventy-seven degrees, the circuit would be completed, the gun-cotton fired, and you and your office blown to kingdom come.' "'But who has done it?' said Dufrayer. Who, in the name of heaven, could have changed the aneroid? Your clerk, North. I have a story to tell you, but I must do so in confidence. Let us go at once to Scotland Yard, Head. This is unbearable. We cannot do so at present, I replied. I am under a promise to hold back information. Dufrayer stared at me, as though once more he thought me possessed. I will explain matters to-night, I said. Come now. Let us turn the key in the door and go out. Dufrayer suddenly glanced at his watch. "'In the excitement of this infernal affair, I had almost forgotten my unfortunate client,' he cried. "'His case must be coming on at the Old Bailey about now. I must start at once.' "'I will walk with you there,' I said. A moment later we found ourselves in Fleet Street. We passed an optician's. In the window was a thermometer. We stood and looked at it, without speaking. The mercury was standing at eighty degrees. That evening the strange story which Elsie Fancourt had confided to me was told to Dufrayer. "'Once again, madam has scored,' was his remark when I had finished, "'and that scoundrel North gets off scot-free. "'Madam has not quite scored, for your life has been spared,' I said with feeling. "'The whole thing was planned with the most infernal cunning,' said Dufrayer. "'Yesterday North came into my office, pointed out that the aneroid was not working properly, and asked me if he might take it to an optician's in Fleet Street.' I very naturally gave him permission. He brought it back in the evening and put it into its place. Yes, the whole plot was timed with the most consummate skill. 
the thermometer has been daily rising for the last few days and madame guessed only too well that it would reach seventy-seven degrees before i went to court this morning doubtless north had informed her that the disney trial was to come on second in the list and that i should not be required at the old bailey before half-past eleven well i have escaped and i owe it to you head and to miss fancourt i pity that poor girl she is too good to be thrown away on a scoundrel like north i wonder what her future history will be i said there is no doubt that north is fast in madame's toils miss fancourt believes however that her mission in life is to reclaim him the ways of some good women are inexplicable End of chapter five chapter six part one of the brotherhood of the seven kings this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the brotherhood of the seven kings by l t meade and robert eustace chapter six the star-shaped marks part one on a certain sunday in the spring of eighteen ninety seven as dufrayer and i were walking in the park we came across one of his friends, a man of the name of Loftus Durham. Durham was a rising artist whose portrait paintings had lately attracted notice. He invited us both to his studio on the following Sunday, where he was to receive a party of friends to see his latest work, an historical picture for the coming academy. "'The picture is an order from a lady who has herself sat for the principal figure,' said Durham. "'I hope you may meet her also on Sunday. My impression is that the picture will do well.' but if so it will be on account of the remarkable beauty of my model but i must not add more you will see what i mean for yourselves he walked briskly away poor durham said dufrayer when he had left us i am glad that he is beginning to get over the dreadful catastrophe which threatened to ruin him body and soul a year back what do you mean i asked i allude to the tragic death of his young wife said dufrayer they were only married two years she was thrown from her horse on the hunting field broke her back and died a few hours afterwards there was a child a boy of about four months old at the time of the mother's death durham was so frightfully prostrated from the shock that some of his friends feared for his reason but i now see that he is regaining his usual calibre i trust his new picture will be a success but notwithstanding his remarkable talent i own i have my doubts it takes a man in ten thousand to do a good historical picture on the following Sunday, about four o'clock, Dufrayer and I found ourselves at Durham's house in Lanchester Gardens. A number of well-known artists and their wives had already assembled in his studio. We found the visitors all gazing at a life-size picture in a heavy frame which stood on an easel facing the window. Dufrayer and I took our places in the background and looked at the group represented on the canvas in silence. Any doubt of Durham's ultimate success must have immediately vanished from Dufrayer's mind. The picture was a magnificent work of art, and the subject was worthy of an artist's best efforts. It was taken from The Lady of the Lake, and represented Ellen Douglas in the guard-room of Stirling Castle, surrounded by the rough soldiers of James V of Scotland. It was named Soldiers Attend. Ellen's first words as she flung off her plaid and revealed herself in all her dark, proud beauty to the wonder of the soldiers. The pose and attitude were superb, and did credit both to Durham and the rare beauty of his model. I was just turning round to congratulate him warmly on his splendid production, when I saw standing beside him Ellen Douglas herself, not in the rough garb of a Scotch lassie, but in the simple and yet picturesque dress of a well-bred English girl. Her large black velvet hat, with its plume of ostrich feathers, contrasted well with a face of dark and striking beauty. 
but I noticed even in that first glance a peculiar expression lingering round the curves of her beautiful lips and filling the big brown eyes. A secret care, an anxiety artfully concealed, and yet all too apparent to a real judge of character, spoke to me from her face. All the same, that very look of reserve and sorrow but strengthened her beauty, and gave that final touch of genius to the lovely figure on the canvas. Just then Durham touched me on the shoulder. "'What do you think of it?' he asked, pointing to the picture. "'I congratulate you most heartily,' I responded. "'I owe any success which I may have achieved to this lady,' he continued. "'She has done me the honour to sit as Ellen Douglas. Mr. Head, may I introduce Lady Faulkner?' I bowed an acknowledgment, to which Lady Faulkner gravely responded. She stepped a little aside, and seemed to invite me to follow her. "'I am also glad you like the picture,' she said eagerly. "'For years I have longed to have that special subject painted. I asked Mr. Durham to do it for me, on condition that I should be the model for Ellen Douglas. The picture is meant as a present for my husband.' "'Has he seen it yet?' I asked. "'No, he is in India. It is to greet him as a surprise on his return. It has always been one of his longings, to have a really great picture painted on that magnificent subject, and it was also one of his fancies that I should take the part of Ellen Douglas. Thanks to Mr. Durham's genius, I have succeeded, and am much pleased.' A new arrival came up to speak to her. I turned aside, but her face continued to attract me, and I glanced at her from time to time. Suddenly I noticed that she held up her hand as if to arrest attention, and then flew to the door of the studio. Outside was distinctly audible the patter of small feet, and also the sound of a woman's voice raised in expostulation. This was followed by the half-satisfied coo, half-cry of a young child, and the next instant Lady Faulkner reappeared, carrying Durham's baby boy in her arms. He was a splendid little fellow, and handsome enough in himself to evoke unlimited admiration. A mass of thick golden curls shadowed his brow, his eyes were large, and of a deep and heavenly blue. He had the round limbs and perfect proportions of a happy, healthy baby. The child had clasped his arms round Lady Faulkner's neck. Seeing a great many visitors in the room, he started in some slight trepidation, but turning again to Lady Faulkner, smiled in her face. "'Ah, there you are, Robin,' said Durham, glancing at the child with a lighting up of his own somewhat sombre face. "'But, Lady Faulkner, please, don't let the little chap worry you. You are too good to him. The fact is, you spoil him dreadfully.' "'That is a libel, for no one could spoil you, could they, Robin?' said Lady Faulkner, kissing the boy on his brow. She seated herself on the window-sill. I went up and took a place beside her. She was so altogether absorbed by the boy that she did not at first see me. She bent over him and allowed him to clasp and unclasp a heavy gold chain of antique pattern which she wore round her neck. From time to time she kissed him. Suddenly, glancing up, her eyes met mine. "'Is he not a splendid little fellow?' she said. "'I don't know how I could have lived through the last few months, but for this little one. I have been kept in London on necessary business, and consequently away from my own child. But little Robin has comforted me. We are great friends, are we not, Robin?' "'The child certainly seems to take to you,' I said. "'Take to me?' she cried. "'He adores me, don't you, baby?' The boy looked up as she addressed him, opened his lips, as if to utter some baby word, then with a coy, sweet smile, hit his face against her breast. "'You have a child of your own?' I said. "'Yes, Mr. Head, a boy. Now I am going to confide in you. My boy is the image of this little one. He is the same age as Robin, and Robin and he are so alike in every feature that the resemblance is both uncommon and extraordinary. But stay, you shall see for yourself.' She produced a locket, touched a spring, 
and showed me a painted photograph of a young child. It might have been taken from little Robin Durham. The likeness was certainly beyond dispute. Dupreyer came near, and I pointed it out to him. "'Is it not remarkable?' I said. "'This locket contains a picture of Lady Faulkner's own little boy. You would not know it from little Robin Durham, would you?' Dufrayer glanced from the picture to the child, then to the face of Lady Faulkner. To my surprise, she coloured under his gaze, which was so fixed and staring as to seem almost rude. Remarking that the picture might assuredly be taken from Durham's boy, he gravely handed back the locket to Lady Faulkner, and immediately afterwards, without waiting for me, took his leave. Lady Faulkner looked after his retreating form, and I noticed that a new expression came into her eyes, a defiant, hard, even desperate look. It came, and quickly went. She clasped her arms more tightly round the boy, kissing him again. I took my own leave soon afterwards, but during the days which immediately followed I often thought with some perplexity of Lady Faulkner, and also of Durham's boy. I had received a card for the private view of the Academy, and remembering Durham's picture, determined to go there on the afternoon of the great day. I strolled through the rooms which were crowded, so much so indeed that it was almost impossible to get a good view of the pictures, but by and by I caught a sight of Durham's masterpiece. It occupied a place of honour on the line. Beyond doubt, therefore, his success was assured. I had taken a fancy to him, and was glad of this, and now pushed my way into the midst of a knot of admirers, who, arrested by the striking scene which the picture portrayed, and the rare grace and beauty of the central figure, were making audible and flattering remarks. Presently, just behind me, two voices, which I could not fail to recognise, fell on my ears. I started, and then remained motionless. The voices belonged to Lady Faulkner and to Madame Colucci. They were together, and were talking eagerly. They could not have seen me, for I heard Lady Faulkner's voice, high and eager. The following words fell on my ears. I shall do it to-morrow or next day. My husband returns sooner than I thought, and there is no time to lose. You have arranged about the nurse, have you not? Yes, and you can confidently leave the matter in my hands, was Madame's reply. And am I safe? There is not the slightest danger of— They were pushed on by the increasing crowd, and I could not catch the end of the last sentence, but I had heard enough. The pictures no longer attracted me. I made my way hurriedly from the room. As I descended the stairs, my heart beat fast. What had Lady Faulkner to do with Madame Colucci? Were the words which unwittingly had fallen on my ears full of sinister meaning? Madame seldom attached herself to anyone without a strong reason. Beyond doubt, the beautiful young Scotchwoman was an acquaintance of more than ordinary standing. She was in trouble, and Madame was helping her. Once more I was certain that in a new and startling manner Madame was about to make a fresh move in her extraordinary game. I went straight off to Defrayer's office, found him in, and told him what had occurred. Beyond doubt, Lady Faulkner's manner was that of a woman in trouble, I continued. From her tone, she knows Madame well. There was that in her voice which might dare anything, however desperate. What do you think of it, Defrayer? Is Durham by any possible chance in danger? That is more than I can tell you, replied Defrayer. Madame Colucci's machinations are beyond my powers to cope with. But, as you ask me, I should say that it is quite possible that there is some new witchery brewing in her cauldron. By the way, Head, I saw that you were attracted by Lady Faulkner when you met her at Durham's studio. Were not you? I asked. To a certain extent, yes, but I was also repelled. I did not like her expression, as she sat with the child in her arms. What do you mean? I can scarcely explain myself, but my belief is that she has been subjected by Madame to a queer temptation. What, of course, it is impossible to guess. 
when you noticed the likeness between Durham's child and her own, I saw a look in her eyes which told me that she was capable of almost any crime to achieve her object. "'I hope you are mistaken,' I answered, rising as I spoke. "'At least Durham has made a great success with that picture, and he largely owes it to Lady Faulkner. I must call round to see him, in order to congratulate him.' I did so a few days later. I found the artist busy in his studio, working at a portrait of a city magnet. "'Here you are, Head. I am delighted to welcome you,' he said when I arrived. "'Pray, take that chair. You will forgive me if I go on working. My big picture having sold so well, I am overpowered with orders. It has taken on. You have seen the reviews, have you not?' "'I have, and I also witnessed the crowds who collected round it on the opening day,' I replied. "'It is a magnificent work of art, Durham. You will be one of our foremost historical painters from this day out.' He smiled, and brush in hand, continued to paint in rapidly the background of his picture. "'By the way,' I said abruptly, "'I am much interested in that beautiful Scotch model who sat for your Ellen Douglas. I have seldom seen a more lovely face.' Durham glanced up at me, and then resumed his work. "'It is a curious story altogether,' he said. "'Lady Faulkner came to see me in November of last year. She said that she had met my little boy in Regent's Park, and was struck by the likeness between her child and mine.' on account of this asked the name of the child, and discovered that I was his father. It seems that my fame as a portrait painter had already reached her ears, and she ventured to visit me to know if I would care to undertake an historical picture. I had done nothing so ambitious before, and I hesitated. She pressed the matter, volunteered to sit for the central figure, and offered me two thousand pounds for the picture when completed. I am not too well off, and could not afford to refuse such a sum. I begged of her to employ other and better well-known men, but she would not hear of it. She wanted my work, and mine alone. She was convinced that the picture would be a great success. In the end her enthusiasm prevailed. I consented to paint the picture, and set to work at once. For such a large canvas the time was short, and Lady Faulkner came to sit to me three or four times a week. She made one proviso. The child was to be allowed to come freely in and out of the room. She attracted little Robin from the first, and was more than good to him. The boy became fond of her, and she never looked better, nor more at her ease, than when she held him in her arms. She has certainly done me a good service, and for her sake alone I cannot be too pleased that the picture is appreciated. "'Is Lady Faulkner still in town?' I asked. "'No. She left for Scotland only this morning. Her husband's place, Bram Castle, in Inverness, is a splendid old historical estate, dating from the Middle Ages.' "'How is your boy?' I asked. "'You keep him in town, I see. But you have good air in this part of London.' "'Yes, capital.' He spends most of his time in Regent's Park. The little chap is quite well, thank you. By the way, he ought to be in now. He generally joins me at tea. Would it worry you if he came in as usual, Head? Not at all. On the contrary, I should like to see him, I said. Durham rang the bell. A servant entered. You can get tea, Collier, said his master. By the way, is baby home yet? No, sir, was the reply. I cannot understand it, added the man. Jane is generally back, long before now. Durham made no answer. He returned to his interrupted work. The servant withdrew. Tea was brought in, but there was no sign of the child. Durham handed me a cup, then stood abstracted for a moment, looking straight before him. Suddenly he went to the bell and rang it. "'Tell nurse to bring Master Robin in,' he said. "'But nurse and baby have not returned home yet, sir.' Durham glanced at the clock. "'It is just six, he exclaimed. "'Can anything be wrong? I had better go out and look for them.' "'Let me go with you,' I said. If you are going into Regent's Park, it is on my way home. Nurse generally takes the child to the broad walk, said Durham. We will go in that direction. 
We entered the park. No sign of nurse or child could we see, though we made several inquiries of the park-keepers, who could tell us nothing. "'I have no right to worry you with all this,' said Durham suddenly. I glanced at him. He had expressed no alarm in words, but I saw now that he was troubled and anxious, and his face wore a stern expression. A nameless suspicion suddenly visited my heart. Try as I would, I could not shake it off. "'We had better go back,' I said. "'In all probability you will find the little fellow safe at home.' I used cheerful words, which I did not feel. Durham looked at me again. "'The child is not to me as an ordinary child,' he said, dropping his voice. "'You know the tragedy through which I have lived?' "'Dufrayer has told me,' I replied. "'My whole life is wrapped up in the little fellow,' he continued. "'Well, I hope we shall find him all right on our return. Are you really coming back with me?' "'Certainly, if you will have me. I shall not rest easy myself, until I know that the boy is safe.' We turned in the direction of Durham's house. We ran up the steps. "'Have you seen them, sir?' asked the butler, as he opened the door. "'No. Are they not back yet?' asked Durham. "'No, sir. We have heard nor seen nothing of either of them.' "'This is quite unprecedented,' said the artist. "'Jane knows well that I never allow the boy to be out after five o'clock. It is nearly seven now. You are quite certain?' he added, turning to the man, that no message has come to account for the child's delay? No, sir, nothing. What do you think of it, Head? He looked at me inquiringly. It is impossible to tell you, I replied. A thousand things may keep the nurse out. Let us wait for another hour. If the child has not returned by then, we ought certainly to take some action. I avoided looking at Durham as I spoke, for Lady Faulkner's words to Madame Colucci returned unpleasantly to my memory. I shall do it to-morrow or next day. You have arranged about the nurse? We went into the studio, and Durham offered me a cigarette. As he did so, I suddenly heard a commotion in a distant part of the house. There was the sound of hurrying feet, and the noise of more than one voice raised in agitation and alarm. Durham's face turned ghastly. "'There has been an accident,' he said. "'I felt that there was something wrong. God help me!' He rushed to the door. I followed him. Just as he reached it, it was flung open, and the nurse, a comely-looking woman of between thirty and forty years of age, ran in and flung herself at Durham's feet. "'You'll never forgive me, sir,' she gasped. "'I feel fit to kill myself.' "'Get up, Jane, at once, and tell me what has happened. Speak. Is anything wrong with the child?' "'Oh, sir, he is gone. He is lost. I don't know where he is. Oh, I know you'll never forgive me. I could scarcely bring myself to come home to tell you.' "'That was folly. Speak now. Tell the whole story at once.' Durham's manner had changed. Now that the blow had really fallen, he was himself once again, a man of keen action, resolute, resolved. The woman stared at him. Then she staggered to her feet, a good deal of her own self-control restored by his manner. "'It was this way, sir,' she began. "'Baby and I went out as usual early this afternoon. You know how fond the baby has always been of Lady Faulkner?' "'Lady Faulkner has nothing to do with this matter,' interrupted Durham. "'Proceed with your story.' "'Her ladyship is in Scotland. At least it is supposed, sir, sir,' continued the woman. "'She came here late last night, and bade us all good-bye. I was undressing the baby when she entered the nursery. She took him in her arms and kissed him many times. Baby loves her so very much. He always called her Pity Lady. He began to cry when she left the room.' "'Go on, go on,' said Durham. "'Well, sir, baby and I went into the park.' "'You know how active the child is, as merry as a lark, and always anxious to be down on his legs. It was a beautiful day, and I sat in one of the seats, and baby ran about. 
He was very fond of playing hide-and-seek round the shrubs, and I used to humour him. He asked for his usual game. Suddenly I heard him cry out, "'Pity lady! Pity lady!' and run as fast as ever he could, round to the other side of a big clump of rhododendrons. He was within a few feet of me, and I was just about to follow him, for half the game, sir, was for me to peep round the opposite side of the trees and try to catch him, when a gentleman, whose acquaintance I had made during the last two days, came up and began to speak to me. He was a Mr. Ivanhoe, and a very gentlemanly person, sir. We talked for a minute or two, and I'll own I forgot baby. The moment I remembered him, I ran round the rhododendrons to look for him, but from that hour to now, sir, I have seen nothing of the child. I don't know where he is. I don't know what has happened to him. Someone must have stolen him, but who? The Lord only knows. He must have fancied that he saw a likeness to Lady Faulkner and someone else in the park, for he did cry out, Pity Lady, just as if his whole heart was going out to someone, and away he trotted as fast as his feet could carry him. That is the whole story, sir. I'd have come back sooner, but I've been searching the place, like one distracted. You did very wrong not to return at once. Did you by any chance happen to see the person the child ran to? I saw no one, sir. Only the cry of the child still rings in my ears, and the delight in his voice. Pity lady, he said, and off he went like a flash. You should have followed him. I know it, sir, and I'm afraid to kill myself. But the gentleman was that nice and civil, and I'll own I forgot everything else in the pleasure of having a chat with him. The man who spoke to you called himself Ivanhoe? Yes, sir. I should like you to give me some particulars with regard to this man's appearance, I said, interrupting the conversation for the first time. The woman stared at me. I doubt if she had ever seen me before. He was a dark, handsome man, she said then, slowly, but with something peculiar about him and he spoke like a foreigner. I glanced at Durham. His eyes met mine in the most hopeless perplexity. I looked away. A thousand wild fears were rushing through my brain. "'There is no good in wasting time over unimportant matters,' said the poor father impatiently. "'The thing to do is to find baby at once. Control yourself, please, Jane. You do not make matters any better by giving way to undue emotion. Did you mention the child's loss to the police?' "'Yes, sir. Two hours back.' "'Durham,' I said suddenly. You and I had better go at once to Defrayer. He will advise us exactly what is to be done. Durham glanced at me, then, without a word, went into the hall and put on his hat. We both left the house. "'What do you think of it, Head?' he said presently, as we were bowling away in a hansom to Defrayer's flat. "'I cannot help telling you that I fear there is grave danger ahead,' I replied. "'But do not ask me any more until we have consulted Defrayer.' The lawyer was in, and the whole story of the child's disappearance was told to him. He listened gravely. When Durham had finished speaking, Defrayer said slowly, "'There is little doubt what has happened.' "'What do you mean?' cried Durham. "'Is it possible that you have got a solution already?' "'I have, my poor fellow, and a grave one. I fear that you are one of the many victims of the greatest criminal in London. I allude to Madame Colucci.' "'Madame Colucci?' said Durham, glancing from one of us to the other. "'What can you mean? Are you dreaming? Madame Colucci?' What can she have to do with my little boy? Is it possible that you allude to the great lady doctor? The same, cried Dufrayer. The fact is, Durham, Head and I have been watching this woman for months past. We have learned some grave things about her. I will not take up your time now relating them, but you must take our word for it that she is not to be trusted, that to know her is to be in danger, to be her friend is to be in touch with some monstrous and terrible crime. For some reason she has made a friend of Lady Faulkner, Head saw them standing together under your picture, 
Head, will you tell Durham the exact words you overheard Lady Faulkner say? I repeated them. Durham, who had been listening attentively, now shook his head. We are only wasting time following a clue of that sort, he said. Nothing would induce me to doubt Lady Faulkner. What object could she possibly have in stealing my child? She has a child of her own, exactly like Robin. Head, you are on a wrong track. You waste time by these conjectures. Someone has stolen the child, hoping to reap a large reward. We must go to the police immediately, and have wires sent to every station round London. I will accompany you, Durham, if you like, to Scotland Yard, said Dufrayer. And I will go back to Regent's Park to find out if the keepers have learned anything, I said. We went our separate ways. The next few days were spent in fruitless endeavours to recover the missing child. No stone was left unturned. The police were active in the search. Large rewards were freely offered. Durham, accompanied by a private detective, spent his entire time rushing from place to place. His face grew drawn and anxious. His work was altogether neglected. He slept badly, and morning after morning awoke feeling so ill that his friends became alarmed about him. "'If this fearful strain continues much longer, I shall fear for his life.' said Dufrayer one evening to me. This was at the end of the first week. End of chapter 6, part 1《The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace Chapter Six: The Star-Shaped Marks Part Two On the next morning there was a fresh development in the unaccountable mystery. The nurse, Jane Cleaver, who had been unfeignedly grieving for the child ever since his disappearance, had gone out and had not returned. Inquiries were immediately sent on foot with regard to what had become of her, but not a clue could be obtained as to her whereabouts. On the evening of that day I called to see Durham, and found the poor fellow absolutely distracted. "'If this suspense continues much longer, I believe I shall lose my reason,' he said. "'I cannot think what has come to me. It is not only the absence of the child. I feel as if I were under the weight of some terrible illness. I cannot explain to you what my nights are like. I have horrible nightmares. I suffer from a sensation as if I were being scorched by fire. In the morning I awake more dead than alive. During the day I get a little better.' but the following night the same is repeated. The image of the child is always before my eyes. I see him everywhere. I hear his voice crying to me to come and rescue him. He turned aside, so overcome by emotion that he could hardly speak. Durham, I said suddenly, I have come here this evening to tell you that I have made up my mind. To do what? he asked. I am going to Scotland to-morrow. I mean to visit Lady Faulkner at Bram Castle. It is quite possible that she knows something of the fate of the child. One thing, at least, is certain, that a person who has a strong likeness to her beguiled the little fellow round the rhododendron clump. Durham smiled faintly. "'I cannot agree with you,' he said. "'I would stake my life on the honour of Lady Faulkner.' "'At least you must allow me to make inquiries,' I replied. "'I shall be away for a few days. I may return with tidings. Keep up your heart until you see me again.' On the following evening I found myself in Invernessshire, I put up at a small village just outside the estate of Bram. The castle towering on its beetling cliffs hung over the rushing waters of the river Bramley. I slept at the little inn, and early on the following morning made my way to the castle. Lady Faulkner was at home, and showed considerable surprise at seeing me. I noticed that her colour changed, and a look of consternation visited her large, beautiful eyes. "'You startled me, Mr. Head,' 
she said. "'Is anything wrong?' "'Wrong? Yes,' I answered. "'Is it possible you have not heard the news?' "'What news?' she inquired. She immediately regained her self-control, sat down on the nearest chair, and looked me full in the face. "'I have news which will cause you sorrow, Lady Faulkner. You were fond of Durham's boy, were you not?' "'Mr. Durham's boy? Sweet little Robin?' she cried. "'Of course. Has anything happened to him?' "'Is it possible that you have not heard? The child is lost.' I then related all that had occurred. Lady Faulkner looked at me gravely, with just the right expression of distress coming and going on her face. When I had finished my narrative, there were tears in her eyes. "'This will almost send Mr. Durham to his grave,' she cried. "'But surely, surely the child will be found.' "'The child must be found,' I said. As I spoke, I looked at her steadily. Immediately my suspicions were strengthened. She gazed at me with that wonderful calm which I do not believe any man could adopt. It occurred to me that she was overdoing it. The slight hardening which I had noticed before round her lovely lips became again perceptible. In spite of all her efforts, an expression the reverse of beautiful filled her eyes. "'Oh, this is terrible!' she said, suddenly springing to her feet. "'I can feel for Mr. Durham from my very heart. My own little Keith is so like Robin. You would like to see my boy, would you not, Mr. Head?' "'I shall be glad to see him,' I answered. "'You have spoken before of the extraordinary likeness between the children.' "'It is marvellous,' she cried. "'You would scarcely know one from the other.' She rang the bell. A servant appeared. "'Tell the nurse to bring baby here,' said Lady Faulkner. A moment later the door was opened. The nurse herself did not appear, but a little boy, dressed in white, rushed into the room. He ran up to Lady Faulkner, clasping his arms ecstatically round her knees. "'Mother's own little boy,' she said. She lifted him into her arms. Her fingers were loaded with rings, and I noticed as she held the child against her heart that they were trembling. Was all this excessive emotion for Durham's miserable fate? "'Lady Faulkner,' I said, jumping to my feet and speaking sternly, "'I will tell you the truth. I have come here in a vain hope. The loss of the child is killing the poor father. Can you do anything for his relief?' "'I,' she said, "'what do you mean?' My words were unexpected, and they startled her. "'Can you do anything for his relief?' I repeated. "'Let me look at that boy. He is exactly like the child who is lost.' "'I always told you there was an extraordinary likeness,' she answered. "'Look round, baby. Look at that gentleman. Tell him you are mother's own, own little boy.' "'Mummy's boy,' lisped the baby. He looked full up into my face. The blue eyes, the mass of golden hair, the slow, lovely smile. Surely I had seen them before.' Lady Faulkner unfastened her locket, opened it, and gave it to me. "'Feature for feature,' she said. "'Feature for feature the same. Mr. Head, this is my child. Is it possible?' She let the child drop from her arms and stood up confronting me. Her attitude reminded me of Ellen Douglas. "'Is it possible that you suspect me?' she cried. "'I will be frank with you, Lady Faulkner,' I answered. "'I do suspect you.' She seated herself with a perceptible effort. "'This is too grave a matter to be merely angry about,' she said. "'But do you realize what you are saying? You suspect me, me, of having stolen Robin Durham from his father?' "'God help me, I do,' I answered. "'Your reasons?' She took the child again on her knee. He turned towards her and caught hold of her heavy gold chain. As he did so, I remembered that I had seen Durham's boy playing with that chain in the studio at Lanchester Gardens. I briefly repeated the reasons for my fears.' I told Lady Faulkner what I had overheard at the Academy. I said a few strong words with regard to Madame Colucci. "'To be a friend of that woman is to condemn you,' I said at last. "'Do you know what she really is?' 
Lady Faulkner made no answer. During the entire narrative she had not uttered a syllable. "'When my husband returns home,' she said at last, faintly, "'he will protect me from this cruel charge.' "'Are you prepared to swear that the boy sitting on your knee is your own boy?' I asked. She hesitated, then said boldly, "'I am.' "'Will you take an oath on the Bible that he is your child?' Her face grew white. "'Surely that is not necessary,' she said. "'But will you do it?' I repeated. She looked down again at the boy. The boy looked up at her. "'Pity, lady,' he said all of a sudden. The moment he uttered the words, I noticed a queer change on her face. She got up and rang the bell. A grave-looking, middle-aged woman entered the room. "'Take the baby, nurse,' said Lady Faulkner. The woman lifted the boy in her arms and conveyed him from the room. "'I will swear, Mr. Head,' said Lady Faulkner. "'There is a Bible on that table. I will swear on the Bible.' She took the book in her hands, repeated the usual words of oath, and kissed the book. "'I declare that that boy is my own son, born of my body,' she said, slowly and distinctly. "'Thank you,' I answered. I laid the Bible down on the table. "'What else do you want me to do?' she said. "'There is one test,' I replied, which, in my opinion, will settle the matter finally. The test is this. If the boy I have just seen is indeed your son, he will not recognize Durham, for he has never seen him. If, on the other hand, he is Durham's boy, he cannot fail to know his father, and to show that he knows him when he is taken into his presence. Will you return with me to town to-morrow, bringing the child with you?' If little Robin's father appears as a stranger to the boy, I will believe that you have spoken the truth. Before Lady Faulkner could reply, a servant entered the room bearing a letter on a salver. She took it eagerly and tore it open, glanced at the contents, and a look of relief crossed her face as her eyes met mine. They were bright now, and full of a curious defiance. "'I am willing to stand the test,' she said. "'I will come with you to-morrow.' "'With the boy?' "'Yes, I will bring the boy.' You must allow him to enter Durham's presence without you. He shall do so. Good, I answered. We can leave here by the earliest train in the morning. I left the castle a few minutes later, and wired to Dufrayer, telling him that Lady Faulkner and I would come up to town early on the following day, bringing Lady Faulkner's supposed boy with us. I asked Dufrayer not to prepare Durham in any way. Late in the evening I received a reply to my telegram come by first train, were its contents. Durham is seriously ill. I thought it best to say nothing of the illness to Lady Faulkner, and at an early hour on the following day we started on our journey. No nurse accompanied the child. He slept a good part of the day. Lady Faulkner herself was almost silent. She scarcely addressed me. Now and then I saw her eyes light upon the child with a curious expression. Once, as I was attending to her comfort, she looked me full in the face. "'You doubt me, Mr. Head,' she said. It is impossible for me to feel friendly towards you until your doubts are removed. I am more grieved than I can say, I answered, but I must, God helping me, at any cost, see justice done. She shivered. At seven p.m. we steamed into King's Cross. Dufrayer was on the platform, and at the carriage door in a second. From the grave expression on his face, I saw that there was bad news. Was it possible that the worst had happened to Durham, and that now there would never be any means of proving— whether the child were Lady Faulkner's child or not. "'Be quick!' he exclaimed when he saw me. "'Durham is sinking fast. I am afraid we shall be too late as it is.' "'What is the matter with him?' I asked. "'That is what no one can make out. Langley Chaston, the great nerve specialist, has been to see him this afternoon. Chaston is completely nonplussed, but he attributes the illness to the shock and strain caused by the loss of the child.' 
Dufrayer said these words eagerly, and as he imagined into my ear alone, a hand touched me on the shoulder. I turned and confronted Lady Faulkner. "'What are you saying?' she exclaimed. "'Is it possible that Mr. Durham is in danger, in danger of his life?' "'He is dying,' said Dufrayer brusquely. Lady Faulkner stepped back as though someone had shot her. She quivered all over. "'Take the child,' she said to me in a faint voice. I lifted the boy in my arms. A brougham awaited us. We got in. The child, weary with the journey, lay fast asleep. In another moment we were rattling along the Marleybone Road toward Lanchester Gardens. As we entered the house, Dr. Curzon, Durham's own physician, received us in the hall. "'You are too late,' he said. "'The poor fellow is unconscious.' It is the beginning of the end. I doubt if he will live through the night. The doctor's words were interrupted by a low cry. Looking round, I saw that Lady Faulkner had flung off her cloak, had lifted her veil, and was staring at Dr. Curzon as though she were about to take leave of her senses. "'Say those words again!' she cried. "'My dear madam, I am sorry to startle you. Durham is very ill, quite unconscious, sinking fast.' "'I must see him,' she said eagerly. "'Which is his room?' "'The bedroom facing you, on the first landing,' was the doctor's reply. She rushed upstairs, not waiting for anyone. We followed her slowly. As we were about to enter the room, the child being still in my arms, Lady Faulkner came out and confronted me. "'I have seen him,' she said. "'One glance at his face was sufficient. Mr. Head, I must speak to you, and alone, at once, at once. Take me where I can see you all alone.' I opened the door of another room on the same landing, and switched on the electric light. "'Put the child down,' she said, "'or take him away. This is too horrible. It is past bearing. I never meant things to go as far as this.' "'Lady Faulkner, do you quite realize what you are saying?' "'I realize everything. Oh, Mr. Head, you are right. Madam, is the most terrible woman in all the world. She told me that I might bring the boy to London in safety, that she had arranged matters, so that his father should not recognize him, so that he would not recognize his father. I was to bring him straight here, and trust to her to put things right.' I never knew she meant this. I have just looked at his face, and he is changed. He is horrible to look at now. Oh, my God, this will kill me! You must tell me all, Lady Faulkner, I said. You have committed yourself now. You have as good as confessed the truth. Then the child, this child, is indeed Durham's son? That child is Loftus Durham's son. Yes, I am the most miserable woman in the universe. Do what you will with me. Oh, yes, I could bring myself to steal the boy but not, not to go to this last extreme step. This is murder, Mr. Head. If Mr. Durham dies, I am guilty of murder. Is there no chance of his life? The only chance is for you to tell me everything, as quickly as you can, I answered. I will, she replied. She pulled herself together, and began to speak hurriedly. I will tell you all, in as few words as possible, but in order that you should understand why I committed this awful crime, you must know something of my early history." My father and mother died from shock after the death of three baby brothers in succession. Each of these children lived to be a year old, and then each succumbed to the same dreadful malady, and sank into an early grave. I was brought up by an aunt, who treated me sternly, suppressing all affection for me, and doing her utmost to get me married off her hands as quickly as possible. Sir John Faulkner fell in love with me when I was eighteen, and asked me to be his wife. I loved him, and eagerly consented. On the day when I gave my consent I met our family doctor. I told him of my engagement and of the unlooked-for happiness which had suddenly dawned on my path. To my astonishment old Dr. Macpherson told me that I did wrong to marry. 
"'There is a terrible disease in your family,' he said. "'You have no right to marry.' He then told me an extraordinary and terrible thing. He said that in my family on the mother's side was a disease which is called pseudo-hypertrophic muscular paralysis. This strange disease is hereditary, but only attacks the male members of the house, all the females absolutely escaping. You have doubtless heard of it?' I bowed. "'It is one of the most terrible hereditary diseases known,' I replied. Her eyes began to dilate. "'Dr. McPherson told me about it that dreadful day,' she continued. "'He said my three brothers had died of it, that they had inherited it on the mother's side, that my mother's brothers had also died of it, and that she, although escaping it herself, had communicated it to her male children. He told me that if I married, any boys who were born to me would in all probability die of this disease.' I listened to him, shocked. I went back and told my aunt. She laughed at my fears, told me that the doctor was deceiving me, assured me that I should do very wrong to refuse such an excellent husband as Sir John, and warned me never to repeat a word of what I had heard with regard to my own family to him. In short, she forced on the marriage. I cannot altogether blame her, for I also was only too anxious to escape from my miserable life, and but half believed the doctor's story. I married to find, alas, that I had not entered into paradise. My husband, although he loved me, told me frankly a week after our marriage that his chief reason for marrying me was to have a healthy heir to his house. He said that I looked strong, and he believed my children would be healthy. He was quite morbid on this subject. We were married nearly three years before our child was born. My husband was almost beside himself with rejoicing when this took place. It was not until the baby lay in my arms that I suddenly remembered what I had almost forgotten, old Dr. McPherson's warning. The child, however, looked perfectly strong, and I trusted that the dreadful disease would not appear in him. When the baby was four months old, my husband was suddenly obliged to leave home in order to visit India. He was to be absent about a year. Until little Keith was a year old, he remained perfectly healthy. Then strange symptoms began. The disease commenced in the muscles of the calves of the legs, which became much enlarged. The child suffered from great weakness. He could only walk by throwing his body from side to side at each step. In terror, I watched his symptoms. I took him then to see Dr. McPherson. He told me that I had neglected his warning, and that my punishment had begun. He said there was not the slightest hope for the child, that he might live for a few months, but would in the end die. I returned home, mad with misery. I dared not let my husband know the truth. I knew that if he did, he would render my life a hell for the fate which had overtaken my first child would be the fate of every other boy born to me. My misery was beyond any words. Last winter, when baby's illness had just begun, I came up to town. I brought the child with me. He grew worse daily. When in town, I heard of the great fame of Madame Colucci and her wonderful cures. I went to see her, and told her my pitiful story. She shook her head when I described the features of the case, and said that no medicine had ever been discovered for this form of muscular paralysis, but said she would think over the case, and asked me to call upon her again. The next day, when in Regent's Park, I saw Loftus Durham's little boy. I was startled at the likeness, and ran forward with a cry, thinking that I was about to embrace my own little Keith. The child had the same eyes, the same build. The child was Keith, to all intents and purposes, only he was healthy, a splendid little lad. I made friends with him on the spot. I went straight then to Madame Colucci, and told her that I had seen a child the very same as my own child. She then thought out the scheme, which has ended so disastrously. She assured me it only needed courage on my part to carry it through. 
we discovered that the child was the only son of a widower, a rising artist of the name of Durham. Mr. Head, you know the rest. I determined to get acquainted with Mr. Durham, and in order to do so, gave him a commission to paint the picture called Soldiers Attend. You can scarcely understand how I lived through the past winter. Madame had persuaded me to send my dying child to her. A month ago I saw my boy breathe his last. I smothered my agony and devoted every energy to the kidnapping of little Robin. I took him away as planned, the nurse's attention being completely engrossed by a confederate of Madame Colucci's. It was arranged that in a week's time the nurse was also to be kidnapped and removed from the country. She is now, I believe, on her way to New Zealand. Having removed the nurse, the one person we had to dread in the recognizing of the child was the father himself. With great pains I taught the boy to call me Mummy, and I believed he had learned the name and had forgotten his old title of Pity Lady. But he said the words yesterday in your presence, and I have not the slightest doubt, by so doing, confirmed your suspicions. When I had taken the dreadful oath that the child was my own, and so perjured my soul, a letter from Madame Colucci arrived. She had discovered that you had gone to Scotland, and guessed that your suspicions were aroused. She said that you were her most terrible enemy, and that more than once you had circumvented her in the moment of victory, but she believed that on this occasion we should win, and she further suggested that the very tests which you demanded should be acceded to by me. She said that she had arranged matters in such a way that the father would not recognize the child, nor would the child know him, that I was to trust her, and boldly go up to London, and bring the boy into his father's presence. The butler, Collier, who of course also knew the child, had, owing to Madame's secret intervention, been sent on a fruitless errand into the country, and so got out of the way. I now see what Madame really meant. She would kill Mr. Durham, and so ensure his silence for ever. But, oh, Mr. Head, bad as I am, I cannot commit murder. Mr. Head, you must save Mr. Durham's life. I will do what I can, I answered. There is no doubt from your confession that Durham is being subjected to some slow poison. What we have to discover. I must leave you now, Lady Faulkner. I went into the next room, where Dufrayer and Dr. Curzon were waiting for me. It was darkened. At the far end, in a bed against the wall, lay Durham. Bidding the nurse bring the lamp, I went across and bent over him. I started back at his strange appearance. I scarcely recognized him. He was lying quite still, breathing so lightly that at first I thought he must be already dead. The skin of the face and neck had a very strange appearance. It was inflamed and much reddened. I called the poor fellow by name, very gently. He made no sign of recognition. "'What is all this curious inflammation due to?' I asked of Dr. Curzon, who was standing by my side. "'That is the mystery,' he replied. "'It is unlike anything I have seen before.' I took up my lens and examined it closely. It was certainly curious. Whatever the cause, the inflammation seemed to have started from many different centres of disturbance. I was at once struck by the curious shape of the markings. They were star-shaped, and radiated as if from different centres. As I still examined them, I could not help thinking that I had seen similar markings somewhere else not long ago, but when and connected with what I could not recall. This was, however, a detail of no importance. The terrible truth which confronted me absorbed every other consideration. Durham was dying before my eyes, and from Lady Faulkner's confession, Madame Colucci was doubtless killing him by means unknown. It was indeed a weird situation. I beckoned to the doctor, and went out with him onto the landing. "'I have no time to tell you all,' I said. "'You noticed Lady Faulkner's agitation? She has made a strange and terrible confession. The child who has just been brought back to the house is Durham's own son. He was stolen by Lady Faulkner for reasons of her own.' 
the woman who helped her kidnap the child was the quack doctor, Madame Colucci. Madame Colucci? said Dr. Curzon. The same, I answered. The cleverest and the most wicked woman in London, a past master in every shade of crime. Beyond doubt, Madame is at the bottom of Durham's illness. She is poisoning him. We have got to discover how. I thought it necessary to tell you as much, Dr. Curzon. Now, will you come back with me again to the sick-room? The doctor followed me without a word. Once more I bent over Durham, and as I did so, the memory of where I had seen similar markings returned to me. I had seen them on photographic plates, which had been exposed to the induction action of a brush discharge of high electromotive force from the positive terminal of a plant rheostatic machine. An eminent electrician had drawn my attention to these markings at the time, had shown me the plates, and remarked upon the strange effects. Could there be any relationship of cause and effect here? "'Has any kind of electric treatment been tried?' I asked, turning to Dr. Curzon. "'None,' he answered. "'Why do you ask?' "'Because,' I said, "'I have seen similar effects produced on the skin by prolonged exposure to powerful X-rays, and the appearance of Durham's face suggests that the skin might have been subjected to a powerful discharge from a focus tube. There has been no electricity employed, nor has any stranger been near the patient.' He was about to proceed, when I suddenly raised my hand. "'Hush!' I cried. Stay quiet a moment. There was immediately a dead silence in the room. The dying man breathed more and more feebly. His face beneath the dreadful star-like markings looked as if he were already dead. Was I a victim to my own fancies, or did I hear, muffled, distant, and faint, the sound I somehow expected to hear, the sound of a low hum a long way off? An ungovernable excitement seized me. Do you hear? Do you hear? I asked, grasping Curzon's arm. "'I hear nothing. What do you expect me to hear?' he said, fear dawning in his eyes. "'Who is in the next room through there?' I asked, bending over the sick man and touching the wall behind his head. "'That room belongs to the next house, sir,' said the nurse. "'Then, if that is so, we may have got the solution,' I said. "'Curzon, Defrayer, come with me at once.' We hurried out of the room. "'We must get into the next house without a moment's delay,' I said. "'Into the next house? You must be mad,' said the doctor." I am not. I have already told you that there is foul play in this extraordinary case, and a fearful explanation of Durham's illness has suddenly occurred to me. I have given a great deal of time lately to the study of the effect of powerful cathode and x-rays. The appearance of the markings on Durham's face are suspicious. Will you send a messenger at once to my house for my fluorescent screen? I will fetch it, said Defrayer. He hurried off. The next thing to be done is to move the bed on which the sick man lies to the opposite side of the room, I said. Curzon watched me as I spoke, with a queer expression on his face. It shall be done, he said briefly. We returned to the sick room. In less than an hour my fluorescent screen was in my hand. I held it up to the wall, just where Durham's bed had been. It immediately became fluorescent, but we could make nothing out. This fact, however, converted my suspicions into certainties. I thought so, I said. Who owns the next house? I rushed downstairs to question the servants. They could only tell me that it had been unoccupied for some time, but that the board, to let, had a month ago been removed. They did not believe that the new occupants had yet taken possession. Dufrayer and I went into the street and looked up at the windows. The house was to all appearance the counterpart of the one in which Durham lived. Dufrayer, who was now as much excited as I was, rushed off to the nearest fire-engine station and quickly returned with an escape-ladder. This was put up to one of the upper windows, and we managed to get in. The next instant we were inside the house, and the low hum of a make-and-break fell on our ears. 
we entered a room answering to the one where Durham's bedroom was situated, and there immediately discovered the key to the diabolical mystery. Close against the wall, within a few feet of where the sick man's bed had been, was an enormous focus tube, the platinum electrode turned so as to direct the rays through the wall. The machine was clamped in a holder, and stood on a square deal table, upon which also stood the most enormous induction coil I had ever seen. This was supplied from the main, through wires coming from the electric lights supplied to the house. This induction coil gave a spark of at least twenty-four inches. Insulated wires from it ran across the room, to a hole in the farther wall into the next room, where the make-and-break was worrying. This had evidently been done in order that the noise of the hum should be as far away as possible. Constant powerful discharges of cathode and x-rays, such as must have been playing upon Durham for days and nights continuously, are now proved to be so injurious to life that he would in all probability have been dead before the morning, I cried. As it is, we may save him. I then turned and grasped Dufrayer by the arm. I believe that at last we have evidence to convict Madame Colucci, I exclaimed, what with Lady Faulkner's confession and— Let us go back at once and speak to Lady Faulkner, said Dufrayer. We returned at once to the next house, but the woman whom we sought had already vanished. How she had gone and when, no one knew. The next day we learned that Madame Colucci had also left London, and that it was not certain when she would return. Doubtless, Lady Faulkner, having confessed in a moment of terrible agitation, had then flown to Madame Colucci for protection. From that hour to now, we have heard nothing more of the unfortunate young woman. Her husband is moving heaven and earth to find her, but in vain. Removed from the fatal influence of the rays, Durham has recovered, and the joy of having his little son restored to him has doubtless been his best medicine. End of chapter 6 When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.